And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. And take it away. Well, Michael, thank you. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about the World Economic Forum, regressing into socialism and feudalism. And my guest today is a gentleman who is probably one of the absolute best researchers and an outstanding writer. He's got a library. You can see it behind him on the screen. He is probably the best researcher I've ever run into in my life. And that is Carl Teichrib. And Carl is going to be talking about a lot of the things that, that are going on right now. He's going to be talking about the latest World Economic Forum, how that all ties into the Green New Deal and all these other insane programs. And we're going to be really getting into the weeds here because I'll tell you, there's so much there you cannot believe it. And Carl has written a book called Game of Gods. It's uh, astounding in the amount of research in it. It's a very thick book. I, I'm thinking it was about 640 pages or something like that. Um, but it was uh, 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 probably the best expose on the New World Order yeah, and so we're going to be talking about that. Uh, Carl, good to see you, my friend. Welcome to the program. Hey, Dan, it's good to be back. And well, I'm sure glad we're not living in our transhumanist future now, because if that was the case, I think we'd all just crash. I can't even find the, <laughs> uh, the unmute button, let alone the upgrade button. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, uh, we are uh, in a different world right now, and... Of course, the people that talk about this stuff, it's, it, it always goes back to the same thing. People with enormous egos and way too much money that think somehow that makes them more intelligent because they've got a lot of money and they've got a lot of power. It means that they should be running the rest of the world and controlling the rest of us. And most of them not only are megalomaniacs, they, on top of that, are so incredibly conceited and full of themselves that uh, they literally couldn't find anything they do as being uh, not correct. 
And so when they come up with these harebrained ideas for the rest of the world, uh, the self-justification comes out all over. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, the level of hubris. And uh, Carl, first of all, you know this as well as I do. You've written about it extensively. Socialism and communism is only intended as a necessary step to take down those of us who love liberty and freedom and once that's accomplished, then the socialists and the communists will be the next to go. And ultimately, what they're envisioning is a feudalist system that hasn't existed for hundreds of years, where a handful of people own everything, and everybody else is just a servant. You know, you raise a good point with that. Uh, a lot of people don't read Marxist communist literature. I've done a little bit of it. Um, probably a little more than, than the average individual, uh, because I don't think the average individual has even picked up the Communist Manifesto, for goodness sake, even though uh, it's, it has had such a, an enormous influence in the last 100 years or, and more. Uh, but Lenin's State and Revolution, his book, State and Revolution, uh, it, it was a forward-thinking book. He believed, and he outlaid it at the time, that there would come a phase within global communism where the very idea of, of a political class would more or less just disappear and it would become a machine and the machine itself would more or less run itself. It would be a, a system of communism, of communal ownership managed and generated by you know, more or less, we would call them now the technocrats, the, this idea of the enlightened uh, engineers of society who would be pulling and, uh, you know, pulling and pushing on the levers and the buttons of our economy to make everything work and 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 so even the political class would would somehow just kind of disappear and we would be managed and I think I would you know Dan and we know we both know this we are living in an overmanaged culture and overmanaged civilization if there's if there's anything you can point to in the last oh golly the last 30 to 50 years is how management and systems of management from land management to how you run your business, uh, everything. There's nothing that isn't now micromanaged uh, to the point where it is completely ludicrous and it binds our hands and ties our feet and doesn't allow us to actually move forward and do things. No, you're spot on with that. And, and tied in with that whole idea is uh, the idea of globalism, where we go from uh, individual rights, individual liberty, and sovereignty. And I, when I say sovereignty, I mean personal sovereignty right up the food chain to national sovereignty. All those things are on, on the chopping block right now. And what they envision is a top-down system so totally in control that they literally decide every single thing we do from from uh, the time we're born till the time we die, they want to control it all. And, you know, to your point on, on individualism and sovereignty, my goodness, if there's one thing that, that just drives me up the wall, and I've seen this now too many times to count, is how Christians downplay freedom and downplay individualism. We've mistaken individualism for selfism. Yeah, I'm against selfism, the idea that the self and, 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 and me, that's all that matters, and that I will live in a world of selfishness 
and and that's it. Individualism is different. There is something unique about that compared to selfism. Uh, the Bible, when we read through Genesis, God made man individually first. Adam and Eve. He didn't make us into the, a collective. We weren't part of some community. In fact, community doesn't exist without individuals, full stop. But we have in this, in this present age, so many Christians who are antagonistic towards a biblical sense of, I don't even think they know what a biblical sense of individualism looks like. Uh, we, we are so far down the rabbit hole of communalism, community, collectivism. It's always for the community. It's also for the social greater good uh, that we tend to forget that that value, human value is placed on us as individuals because of who made us as individuals. And that is first and foremost. Then the order of importance becomes from the individual because you stand as an individual. You're responsible as an individual. You make individual value decisions, moral decisions. Where you stand is an individual stance. It may have been influenced by a group or by a collective, but at the end of the day, you're still responsible for yourself. And then the next uh, order is the family unit. <laughs> because that's the next instituted God-given position is the family. And by family, you could even look at the extended family uh, beyond just simply your siblings or your children, all the way out to your, to your grandparents and your aunts and your uncles. Some people would call that the tribe or the clan back in the olden days. Uh, but that's really where your sense of, of, of connection begins is always at that family level. Uh, and then for us as Christians, it's the church. Um, and why do I say the church third, not second? Well, because the church in, in its broad sense, in its broad terminology, doesn't mean it's always accurate. It doesn't mean it's correct. In fact, if we've seen one thing, Dan, in the last number of decades is how crazy off the rails the church goes and removes itself from biblical truth. So when you find a Bible-believing church, yes, you are responsible to that, and, and you are accountable to that church as well. But before any, any of that even happens, you've existed within that family unit, that family relationship. And then you also have existed as an individual who is responsible for your actions. Finally, down the road is government and, and, and the larger unit that you, that you operate under. Um, and the way, of course, that we have our, our government system structured in the West, both in your country, which is a constitution has a constitutional uh, system of government versus my country, which is a British-style parliamentary system. Nevertheless, either way, uh, ultimately, your standing with the government, though it's important, uh, does not supersede the value of the individual or of the family or even of the church. Well, and uh, Carl... Central to that whole concept, the whole idea of individualism and individual rights is something that a lot of people overlook, and that is a sense of stewardship. You have to have a sense that you are there to protect and to define and to provide guidance and to pro provide stewardship for that whole, uh, that whole realm. And that's something that a lot of people are missing because as the government steps in and takes more and more control, uh, individuals tend to uh, give up those stewardship rights. And in fact, a lot of them are just so lazy, they don't want them anyway. 
Uh, and that's part of the problem. We need to get back to stewardship. Yes, yes. If you look at the history of collectivism, what happened in the Soviet Union or communist China or, or the horror show of Pol Pot's Cambodia, doesn't matter which collectivist system you look at, uh, it, it is collective ownership, no longer individual ownership, no longer individual responsibility. We'll have our collectivized farms. So in the Soviet Union, you know, you would have, in order to have your, your land collectivized, you have your land, first of all, collectivized, then you have your machinery collectivized, then you'd have your production, your labor collectivized. And, and the machinery might be, you know, 10 miles down the road compared to where the land is. And your labor force may be on a complete, you know, in a completely different direction. And the cattle might be in a completely different direction as well. And, and your machinery rusts because nobody's going to be responsible for it. And your land becomes unworked because nobody's really responsible for it. And, and they, you know, the government pretends to pay you and you pretend to work. And then under the, the, the travesty of Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward, where they collectivized everything right down to shovels and rakes and hoes and, and collectivized your homes and then even ripped your mud homes apart to, to reclaim the soil and put it back into the ground and, and somehow magically reclaim the nutrients through it. It was a freak show, literally a freak show that caused the deaths by bureaucracy to the tune of something like 30 to 40 million in the space of four years, mostly through starvation, as these men equipped with the vision of the anointed, they believe that they were the anointed ones to, to usher in this utopian age, uh, put forward their collectivist ideas, and of course, it doesn't work. And it failed in a, at a scale that, that was... Uh, and there, there's really almost nothing that compares to the Great Leap Forward in terms of, of how much destruction could happen over such a short period of time um, against so many individuals. Yeah, so, no, yeah. so no thank you. When we look at globalization, globalization inevitably uh, has to look at collectivizing. Uh, it has to look at making things more of a, a, of a commons. Um, the approach is always... A top-down approach, and you well know from your own history, from your own experience, that uh, when when you take and you you put administration far away from where the action actually happens, um, the administration's one-size-fits-all answers don't work, because when you, as a landowner, are responsible for your piece of ground, it may look completely different than what the bureaucrats think about your land and how you should be managing it removed by 3,000 miles sitting in Washington, D.C. versus what's happening, let's say, in western Montana. They haven't a clue. That's right. They don't. And, and uh, <clears throat> along with that idea, uh, there's, a, there's a saying that I, I love, and it's absolutely true. You, uh, people don't wash rented cars. Um, when, <laughs> when you have no sense of ownership of something, you're not going to take care of it in the same way that you will, the kind of stewardship that you will, if you have a personal stake in it. And uh, that's exactly right. Uh, the war on the West, in fact, that's a, a big subject right now, what they're trying to do to farming and ranching in the Western part of the United States. I mean, they're doing everything they can to put small family farms and ranches out of business and turn it back into their vision of a, a pre-Columbian wilderness. Well, guess what? 
you can't have a forest and not have individual trees. And if those individual trees are sick, you're going to have a very unhealthy forest. Exactly, exactly. And this has been uh, really the confrontation that we've seen taking place. And it is a confrontation because it's a clash. It's a clash of, uh, of, of really a worldview, whether it's big government and the collective that has responsibility and management over you as the individual, or whether you as the individual have the right and the responsibility to look after your own affairs, including your own property. Um, I, I look at my, my Canadian system. We have uh, Indian reserves, as you have in the United States. One of the one of the downfalls of the reserves, and, and by the way, the reserves are it's rough. Things can be. I have a reserve just thirty miles down the road from me. It is can be really, really rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no private property over your home or the parcel of land that you're situated on. The band owns it. The band dictates uh, how that that house will be lived in or who's going to live in that home or how that, that land may be used. Um, and if you're, you know, in, in good standing with the chief and the council, Hey, you're going to be okay. If all of a sudden, maybe you're not, well, maybe things aren't going to look up so well. And of course they're going to try to operate within uh, the idea of, of working for the whole, but you can't, you can't use your private property then as collateral. You, mm-hmm. you're, you're stuck. You are stuck in an economic closed loop that doesn't allow you to go beyond that. And it, it implodes and it has drastically, catastrophically. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've told people this for, uh, for decades. If you want to see what they have planned for us, go to uh, an Indian reservation, go to uh, you know, one of these uh, locations where the government is big brother and provides most of the income and take a look at how they live. And that's absolutely true. We hear this woke crap, this woke uh, thinking that talks about how uh, European white males are a bunch of racist, uh, chauvinist pigs, and, and we need to be uh, wiped off the face of the earth. Well, the fact is, um, ideas of property came from white Europeans, and uh, the idea of property is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And if you want to see, you're absolutely right. You want to see what the inverse is, go to an Indian reservation and, and take a look at the lifestyles there. They are good people, and they're dealing with a system that has turned them into slaves over a period of about 150 years. And um, all we should do there, the best thing that could happen to the Indian reservations is to give every single member of that tribe a piece of land and let them do what they will with their own land. Yeah, and to your point about uh, the culture, that historical culture of where private property, private ownership comes from, it goes even even beyond the European context, uh, uh, specifically to to the Jewish people, which are not technically Caucasians, um, out of the Middle East, because that's where our sense of private property, private ownership, private responsibility, really, from a Christian point of view, stems from, and of course, from God himself. And the Ten Commandments give us a perfect illustration of what that is, uh, all the way down to don't steal, 
<laughs> well, why not? Why not? If it's collectivist, collectivist property, you're not actually stealing. You're just simply using what's already part of the group, but that's not the case. We're told not to steal. Uh, and in fact, all of the Ten Commandments, including God saying you shall have no other gods before me, has a property implication with God saying, I have my own name. I am my own, my own being. I am my own personality. I created you. Do not distort that by seeking after this false property of another deity which is just a falsehood. Don't do that. Don't, uh, don't, don't destroy your relationship with me because I am the only God and you need to treat me as such. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, so there's this, a, a huge implications in all this, Dan. And, and what the, the globalist concept does is it strips all of that away. I mean, that's what the world economic forum has. When you talked about, wokeism uh, my goodness the world economic forum <laughs> is globalization um tapped into wokeism and of course for those who may be unfamiliar with the world economic forum i know you brought it up in the very beginning of our conversation uh the world economic forum is really an ecosystem it's not just simply one organization it's an ecosystem where one organization the wef um, ties together the international community, United Nations uh, personnel, uh, members from the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, with the banking, centralized banking community, uh, members of the Bank for International Settlements, Bank of England, all the major banks, my, can my country Canada, the top five national banks or nationally recognized banks, all of them sit on the World Economic Forum as members. Um, and then you go into your corporations, everything from Microsoft and Google to Apple. Uh, uh, you know, the list that goes on, not just simply tech organizations or tech businesses, but major transportation businesses, uh, resource companies, Cargill. <laughs> Cargill is huge in the WEF. And then into your non-governmental sector, sector and your academic sector. And so it brings all of this together under one umbrella and becomes a bridge really between the United Nations, the global ideas behind the United Nations and those visionary ideas that they, that they push, things like Agenda 2030 and the climate change narrative. And then it marries that in with all these other sectors and so now they are interpreting what the international community has been trying to achieve. Uh, and, and so it's really important, uh, uh, an important component of this idea of internationalism and, and globalism. It's an important part, but I'd, I'd love to hear, and, and I know you've done a lot of research on this, uh, how they justify these big corporations and these entities that have made a, a small fortune using free enterprise, how they get involved. And I think a BlackRock uh, is, is the poster child of that. But um, they, they use the system, and then once they've used the system to build this empire, then they get on the collectivist bandwagon. How do they justify that? They justify it because they believe, and, and they are very clear in stating that, in a sense, they're holding the moral high ground. They're doing this for, you know, the language, the greater good. Mm -hmm. 
so they, they can justify it based on the fact that they that they see their vision as being the ideal vision. They have the larger picture. They've got that thirty thousand foot view from the airplane, you know, the airplane window. They just happen to be sitting in first class, especially, or not even that, in their own private jets. <laughs> so exactly. they they you know, so they're disconnected from the reality on the ground, but they are firmly connected to the vision of the United Nations and its sense of, of moral direction for our, for our, our planet. Uh, and I'm not saying that loosely, that's actually how it's, it's framed. Um, a sidebar to this is, is the work done at the Parliament of the World Religions, which a lot of people think of as just about religion. It's actually a, a religious manifestation of, of the political ideas of globalism uh, and, and it is absolutely an essential component to understand how globalization will, will move forward as religious leaders become statesmen and state, you know, stakeholders of the globalist perspective. But back at the 1993 parliament, the, the first one in, in, the, you know, in our modern history, the very, very first one happened, by the way, back in 1893. But the 1993 Parliament, they issued forth their global ethic. Well, who gave them the right to, to determine what, what you know, be, constitutes a global ethic? Well, they did. Mm-hmm. And then, and I think it was their 1999 Parliament, uh, they unleashed their, their document. Uh, you know, I can't remember the exact name of the document. I have it on my shelf back there. Uh, on... on helping our guiding institutions, specifically the United Nations and the International Monetary uh, Fund, move forward to have a a global system that is built upon the ethics of globalism. Well, again, who gave them the the right to start working through all of these ideas? Well, they did. And that's how it works. Well, let's talk about the ethics of globalism. Just exactly what are the ethics of globalism in their uh, in their visionary uh, heads? Uh, <laughs> I, I love that ethics of globalism. I mean, if there's anything that lacks ethics, it's globalism. But let's let's explore that. Yeah, you know, we we need to first of all explore it in its negative because as you go through the literature, and I'm thinking specifically of some of the literature that came out around the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, and not just simply the assessment, but the massive cultural and spiritual assessment that became that, that came out as a second edition uh, that a lot of folks don't even know was published. Uh, it was published. I mean, not that long after the very first um, uh, uh, assessment. And of course, these assessments were the interpretations of that little itty bitty 18 page biodiversity convention. So as you go through, let's say, just that literature, you realize what the ethics, ethics are in their negative, what they're not. They're not built on the Judeo Christian framework, they're not built on the Judeo Christian idea that God is separate, distinct and unique and holy. They're not built on that. They're built rather on Gaia and the pagan concept that nature itself needs to be venerated, that nature itself has a sense of divinity. Uh, It's not, the ethic is not built then on the value of the individual because the value of the individual is first given because God made us as individuals. No, no, now the value of the individual is subsumed into the value of the collective. 
You only have value, purpose, and meaning if you're part of this grander narrative, part of this greater global story. That's the only way that you have any purpose. Uh, otherwise, you're just another useless eater. Uh, and as you know, you're just fertilizer waiting to happen. Um, and so the individual has to has to disappear, uh, or not disappear. You you become part of something bigger. Your value becomes part of something bigger. So what is that? Well, it's this idea, and they're the ones guiding the idea that we are a part of a global community. We have a a, a global. We are global citizens. Uh, in fact, Dan, my very first event that I attended as a, as a researcher, going boots on the ground was back in 1997 at an event in Vancouver, British Columbia called the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, held 1,000 days before the year 2000, um, where Robert Mueller, the former United Nations high official, was our keynote speaker and guided and directed school children, because this was an event for school children and educators and curriculum developers and policymakers. And we had lots of schools represented. And we were told over and over again about how your task your ethical task, your moral task, is to work for Mother Earth and to allow this planet to flourish and blossom as Gaia and how we need to work together towards this end. So much so, Dan, that we had uh, – I've got to pull it out of my book. Sorry, I've got it in my book. I think it's in Chapter 2, where what some of the schools actually – proposed, because some of the schools that were there, not some, all of them that were there, uh, talked about how they would um, develop little projects and ideas to, to become more planetized, because this is, after all, the planetary, the planetary generation. Basically, it's all about making us into social justice warriors. Let's see if I can quickly find it. Um, well, um, you know, I, I'm sorry. To that same thesis, and and uh, you, you go ahead and uh, you, you look it up, just interrupt yep. me, but uh, central to that same thesis is something that you brought up that's very important, and that is that humans are no different than any other biological species, and therefore uh, someone else or something else should be able to determine how, who lives and who dies. Right. Right. So here's just an idea of, of where this idea of uh, or where this concept of, of an ethic comes from or, or how it's it's being expressed. And this is from Robert Mueller's his World Core Curriculum. Um, and it says this, a new world morality and world ethics. And then he goes on to describe that as global management and the purpose to become again what we were on is on to say to make each human being proud to be a member of a transformed species and so the schools that were there representing uh or, or this children that were there representing the different schools came up with various ideas uh one, one of the ideas and i think it i can't remember which school it was but talked about how what we need to do is is get away from money we have to move away from money we, what we need to do is have earth points and those earth points would be contingent on how you serve the planet. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't be able to technically, you know, as you're reading into this thing, as you're, as you're listening to it, you technically wouldn't be able to buy or sell unless your earth points demonstrated your loyalty. Uh, you know, and these were school children coming up with this idea. And I'm like, well, where did that come from? I mean, who's giving you these ideas? 
Uh, and, I th- and I think, Dan, maybe I've explained some of this on your show in the past, but I remember one of the, the schools that was there, uh, they, they, they did a, a, a one-act play to demonstrate their loyalty to the earth. And so there was a girl, she sat up on a round table and she held pine boughs in her hands. And now in retrospect, they're looking back going, well, where does she break off those pine, pine boughs from those pine branches? Cause <laughs> they just didn't, you know, pop up in the middle of, of our conference building. Uh, she must've went outside and snapped them off the trees. Shame on her. Uh, but there she was as mother earth. And she had a council of humans, all girls sitting around her. And then each girl in turn confess their environmental sins i wear leather shoes i don't recycle enough the one that still ticks me off is my dad has a truck or a car that burns too much oil Uh, and then they went around after confessing their sins told mother earth how they would then rectify their sins i i will find a more sustainable uh, product for my shoes or i will recycle more and then i'm going to call the authorities on my dad if he doesn't get his vehicle fixed by a certain date like are you are you kidding me are you kidding me um wild dan it's just wild but that's hey that's where we are and that was 1997 you know, that was my first little take of, of what this looks like beyond just simply reading books and documents and going, smokes. Um, ideas have consequences. This is serious stuff. Um, we're in trouble. And so the antidote to this ethic of globalization, which says ultimately we are becoming the planet of God, in fact, that's how Robert Mueller describes it. We are the planet of God, and we are recognizing our own divinity. The antidote to that is to actually go back to even, my goodness, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and recognize that God is God, Yahweh is God, and there is no other, and that he is the one who creates, and because of that, he has authority over how he brings value and judgment and determines what is true and what is false. And my goodness, biology even demonstrates that. Um, he made us male and female. So now, of course, we're in this great big, huge sexual revolution, this gender revolution, which, by the way, the WEF plays right into as well mm-hmm. um, in a significant way. But even that is a reflection of this globalist ideology that says ultimately there are no binaries there is no distinction i mean when you boil it right down to its essence there are no distinctions it's all oneness we're all serving the planet because we're also the planet i think teilhard de jardin talked about this as, as we would be birthing the the consciousness of the planet and therefore birthing the universe. Um, somehow we, we, we are divine because of what we can potentially do as a collective. Well, no, we're not, sorry. We, we you know, we only, all we can do, Dan, is make heaven, on, pardon me, hell on earth as we try to force heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. No. It, become, it becomes, a, yeah, it becomes a bloody utopian nightmare. Well, um, you know, and, and this goes back to the same thing that you talked about earlier is that uh, we are nothing but just one more biological species in uh, humanity has nothing other than uh, we crawled out of the primordial slime uh, maybe a little quicker than some of the others. 
and it has no connection to God. And and therefore, it's easy to get rid of us. I, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is when you dehumanize, you desensitize the way these people are right now, uh, you are creating the, I guess, the foundation for a system where killing off a whole bunch of people doesn't mean anything to you. That That's why Mao Zedong, the, the ultimate communist, uh, to him, it was uh, getting rid of uh, useless eaters. They, they all have that common thinking that they believe that somehow only a handful are really the divine ones and the rest of us are just there to serve them. Yes. Yes. And, and then when you take it from that evolutionary perspective and you dive into the history of, of how that has played out, um, even World War One, you take a look at, at the devastation of World War One, and there was something extraordinarily evil that happened during World War One. I. I mean, all war intrinsically, there's, there's an evilness to it uh, in that it's man killing man. Um, but in this case, it was something extra special in terms of, of its gravity, its darkness that unfolded as, as the might of our industry was unleashed on the battlefield, really for the very first time in a significant way. Aircraft, mustard gas, the machine gun, tanks, submarines. Uh, you know, of course, you have you've got you have some of these, you know, you have some some measure of industry in warfare all, all the time, but in this case, it was like it blossomed. The, the battlefield became the laboratory for how we could engage in, in killing at a mass scale. But then when you, then when, you, when you peel it back even further, you realize that so many of the generals had a, an evolutionary perspective. In fact, World War I was couched as a, a, a war, an evolutionary war, a social Darwinist war, because they took the concept of Darwinian evolution and applied it to the nation. The strongest will survive and the weakest will fall. And, and a Benjamin Kidd, who was a British social historian and thinker of that era, uh, he makes it quite clear in, in one of his books, The Science of Power, about how this was really evolution unfolding on the battlefield. And so it was not a big deal for a general to throw away 10,000 lives in half an hour as he orders his men to go forward against the inevitable steel wall of death that they would encounter. So what? 30,000 men in a day. So what? 50,000 men in a single day. So what? It's just evolution. Wow. I, I have not read that book. That's oh, it's, amazing. It's crazy. When you dig, dig into the evolutionary thinking, it's like, so what? This is just the, yeah. the, the this is just the, the, um, the strength, the, the strength of the nation coming through to its fullness from an evolutionary point of view. It is, it is, the strongest it, it's it's uh, the the idea of of the weakest will not will not survive the strongest survive but again dan and you know it from just the, even the history of eugenics that in the 1800s as the eugenics movement was coming into fruition it was all about the strongest survive right 
And then you've got the early eugenics movement, which, by the way, didn't come out of Nazi Germany. It came out of Britain and the United States with the, the state of Indiana being the very first state, the very first jurisdiction to put eugenic laws in place. It was all about culling the weak, mm-hmm. eradicating those, um, the weak link in the evolutionary time scale. So we have to get rid of the feeble-minded. That was their term. We have to get rid of uh, those who have alcoholism or epilepsy or, or other various diseases or maybe who are just poor because that also was a reflection of your, low, your lower scale uh, on, the, on the evolutionary time scale. Even your poverty could be a reflection of that. And so under social Darwinism, same principle. Now apply just... on a smaller scale, no longer on the battlefield. Now it's right here in your own family. And and even unfortunately, sadly, devastatingly, even churches got on board and had eugenics crusades. Oh, give me a break. What an anti-human, anti-life approach. And so, yeah, really it is. This is Mm -hmm. the antithesis, literally the antithesis of the biblical worldview. Um. And so bring it all back around to where we are today. What is the ethics of globalization? It ultimately is an anti-human ethic that says the planet takes precedence. And we, as the managers of the planet, take precedence. Because we're acting after the best interest as a collective over the planet. That's why if you take a look at even the, you know, the Soviet system, um, everybody was equal, right? Except if you were Lenin or Stalin and Brezhnev or Gorbachev, well, the common folk were, were hoping that they could find some potatoes to eat or distill into vodka and try to drown away their, the, the, the misery and, and, the, and the depression of their, of their life of, of really servitude while the common person was struggling to live at a day-to-day level and maybe queued up in long lines to get a loaf of bread, uh, they could go off to their resort on the Black Sea. So there's always this, yeah, so there's always this double standard, hey? So Dan, shame on you for driving an SUV. I'm not sure, Dan, if you actually drive an SUV, but you know, shame on, okay, awesome, good. Shame on me for driving an old pickup truck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's okay if I'm, um, you know, the CEO of Google and I hop in my private jet and I blow a lifetime of fuel hopping from climate change conference to the WEF in Davos to wherever to promote this vision of what the world should look like, you know, but shame on me for having a pickup truck. Yeah, give me well, a break. You know, you you bring up a good point. Uh, the WEF that was uh, just in January, uh, they said that the amount of planes there, and I've read various numbers, but um, on the low end, uh, the private jets were 1,200, and the numbers went from there up. Uh, I have a, a friend who, uh, a guy who in... Uh, Northern California, who is a commercial pilot, and he's the one that told me the numbers and verified them. And it turns out he was right on the money because uh, he's actually flown 
uh, different people in private jets to Davos. Uh, so he said it's unbelievable the amount of uh, hardware that's sitting on the runways. And I got a huge kick out of it because I, I did a little of my own research on that to make sure everything is copacetic. And lo and behold, guess who uh, uh, private jet came up? Uh, uh, Greta Thurston, uh, the the uh, <laughs> has a beautiful private jet <laughs> that flew into uh, Davos to uh, beride everybody there on uh, how we need to be doing our part to have a clean and helpful environment. And, and then let me guess from the airport. They probably hopped in probably SUVs. Well, actually, it was more like a, a mega limousine. Uh, <laughs> one I, it, it had like eight doors. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. I and, know. and that's the hypocrisy of it. But at the same time, it kind of defines how completely out of kilter the whole idea of all this stuff is. And of course, you mentioned the thing with transgenderism and all the other stuff. The, the New Deal is to take all this uh, extra precaution to make sure that you're inclusive. And that inclusiveness includes uh, mental retardation, all sorts of things. Isn't that really just a, a hypocritic uh, uh, smokescreen for what they really want to do? I know it, it is. You're right. The the hypocrisy runs deep, but in their view, in from, you know, from their perspective, they're not even considering that. That's not the point. The point is that they have a higher ideal. They have a grander vision. They're the ones bringing it to fruition. They can do this. They should do this. They're the ones who can afford to do it. They're the ones who are making this reality come to fruition. Uh, you know, as you know, Dan, I, I've been to Burning Man a few times. I've been to Burning Man now uh, three times in northern Nevada and then a bunch of times both in the virtual space and then also in uh, uh, to a regional burn. And one of the conversations that occurs when I've been at Burning Man is the carbon footprint, the amount of, of, of wood <laughs> that's burned up. And not just wood, plastic and other, other uh, uh, materials are burned up in the atmosphere. And I have heard it while at Burning Man, while sitting in workshops on things like the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which happened there. I mean, everybody thinks that this is just a great big party. Oh, no, it's, it's more like a combination of Davos and the Bohemian Grove um, when you get past the party side of it. But over and over again, the the response to their carbon footprint is, but we are will, but we are the ones who are making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. That's the excuse. That's mm -hmm. the reason. It's not hypocrisy. Then, see, mm -hmm. we hold the mile. We hold the moral high ground. We're the ones with the ethical vision. And they're also the ones that uh, uh, don't believe that individuals should have any rights and. Uh, therefore, uh, any justification for any form of evil is perfectly fine because, as you say, they hold the moral high ground. Right.
And we we stop this. <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead. I mean, I, I, I want you to carry this conversation, but no, no, no. That's been the biggest problem that I've seen is the fact that this is so far over the top. This is so far, uh, you know, so so incredibly uh, uh, over the top that most people can't even fathom it, and they almost choose to ignore it because they can't believe that anybody would think this way. And in fact, these are the people who are designing the systems that are carrying our world in the direction that it is. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> but but unless you understand that, you're going to miss it. In fact, so often we end up <laughs> jumping into the weeds without realizing that uh, you know there's an entire field of of problems growing up around us. But back to this idea of uh, and because I don't want to lose it quickly, the idea mm -hmm. that that they have the moral high ground or that the, that they believe they're holding to a higher position. Just the writings of Bertrand Russell alone ought to tell you something. I popped it up on my screen. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. This is from one is the, the Future of Science that he wrote in 1959. And the other one is uh, from his book, The Impact of Science on Society, 1953. And these are slides I have from uh, a, a course I teach on secular and pagan trends. So the first one from, from Russell, The Future of Science. I believe that owing to men's folly, a world government will only be established by force and will therefore be at first cruel and despotic. But I believe that that is necessary for the preservation of a scientific civilization, and that if once realized, it will gradually give rise to the other conditions of a tolerable existence. No, thank you. No, <laughs> thank you. But he has no problem here with it being cruel or despotic. He says, I believe it's necessary does that say something? And then, well, and then that result is a society that's tolerable. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> tolerable to them, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. And then from his book, The Impact of Science on Society, it's 1953. But you know something? He could have wrote it in 2023. I do not believe that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect. But perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. If a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. There would be nothing in this to offend the consciousness of the devout or to restrain the ambitions of nationalists. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. A scientific world society cannot be stable unless there is a world government. Really, Dan? Really wow. high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially, especially others. You, we're not, we're, you know, we're totally indifferent to your suffering. Who cares if you suffer? As long as it's for the greater good. I wish that more liberal people would read. And, and when I say liberal people, because we've, we've got friends, you and I both have friends who espouse all this socialist nonsense. Uh, they're, not, they're not Christian, uh, right. most of them. And, 
And so they espouse this stuff and they say, again, it, it holds a higher moral ground because it's for the good of the collective, of society. And when you talk to them about individualism and the rights of individuals, they're almost offended by the concept. You wish that they would read more of writings like Bertrand Russell so that they could understand the mindset of the maniacs and the megalomaniacs, egomaniacs behind this whole movement. Exactly. Uh, you know, it, it's not hidden. This isn't a conspiracy by uh, people in a, in a shattery room somewhere smoking some Cuban cigars, which are illegal in your country and not illegal in mine. And by the way, there really isn't anything special about them. But, <laughs> you know, it's not a <laughs> it's not really about about this shadowy group. They're very open. I mean, my goodness, H.G. Uh, Wells described this as an open conspiracy because it is. You, you are, it's, it's a cult, a cult in this way that it is, it has its own priest class. It has its own eschatology. It has its own holy writings. Uh, and that is the literature that comes from themselves. Um, it, it really is a, a type of cult, especially with all that in mind, it proselytizes. Mm-hmm. And proselytizes in a significant way, as I just demonstrated earlier with the Global Citizenship Youth Congress I went to. If you want to see where globalization is rammed down your throat, you need to look at the education system. Mm-hmm. And if that's not proselytizing, I don't know what is. If all of a sudden some crazy cult invaded your town and, uh, and, and influenced your mayor, influenced your school teachers, influenced your businessmen, influenced um, the principal of your school, influenced your your clergy, don't you think you would be a little bit concerned for your community, for your family, for yourself? We have the same thing, except it's global. And that's why it's just sometimes even just right outside of our field of vision, because it is so big, it can't be anything but a conspiracy. No, it's a cult, and it's proselytizing, and it's doing a darn good job of it too, unfortunately. It's the same. Yeah. It's a, it's that same model of having the a, a crazy cult come to your community. This has already come to your community. Full stop. Mm-hmm. Sure has. Well, you you uh, mentioned all the uh, how all these kind of tie together. If you wouldn't mind, give give our uh, listeners and our viewers a, an idea of how the cross pollination has worked between the UN and the World Bank and the Bank of International Settlements and the Global Green Agenda, how these all have, uh, you know, cross-pollinated and, in fact, are all part of the same big club. Well, well, first of all, it is part of a big club because they all go to the same meetings. They all interact at the same conferences. They're all part of this uh, of this dance, and, and allow me to, to. I'm going to read a section of my book because I explain the dance to some degree. Because the dance also comes right down to the local level, uh, and you can just simply take all of those different pockets of influence that you've just described: the banking community, uh, the United Nations, um, the academic side, 
and you can take all of them. You can see that they're all playing the same game. They're all part of the same big dance. So this is a little section that's taken from page 333 of my book. The dance goes something like this. Intellectual visionaries armed with predictive models make new claims regarding or demanding public attention, along with funding and policy changes. A lobbying campaign kicks in emotions into motion at the United Nations action groups and academia give counsel and solidify the narrative at the global level. National governments responding to the new pressures invite stakeholders and experts to assist in formulating public policy. Politicians showboat on cut and paste proclamations and social management solutions. Budget lines, and by the way, let me add, they actually don't have a clue what's going on. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Um, I, I don't know any politician who's a, who's a climatologist. No, most of them, most of them, all they do is uh, turn all the uh, uh, research over to somebody else and right, right. might get a short briefing on it. Right. And so it all goes back to how this dance begins. So politicians showboat on cut and pasted proclamations and social management solutions. Budget lines are added and grants doled out. Economic incentives create allegiances to the political scientific consensus. Industries and corporations and trade associations, well, let's line up banking with this too, line up with products and proposals. Financial institutions monetize contracts. Big one. Coordinate flow and create markets. And that's how things go, isn't it? Boy, uh, uh, now we just quickly lost my place. Here we go. Um, multilateral banking groups channel international commitments. The model has become much too big to fail. <laughs> Therefore, scientific counterclaims and criticisms are downplayed while the invested narrative is continually reinforced. Globetrotting celebrities, Leonardo DiCaprio or Al Gore or Bill Gates or Bono, pompously prayed the cause trust the experts is shouted from the red carpet to the podium and back to the safety of private jets and yachts. Meanwhile, new winners and losers in the marketplace are determined by edict and bureaucratic compulsion. Regulations and restrictions and taxes are foisted on the public. That's how it all plays together. Why do banks jump on board? Why do financial institutions jump on board? Somebody's got to monetize the whole thing. Somebody's got to monetize the contracts. Somebody's got to operate as a, a vehicle to allow the flow of money and trade to continue. Somebody's got to be there to ensure that market availability is, is open and is now, uh, you, they have their own gatekeepers, which is really important to understand the role of what's called ESG. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. from, from the WEF, of course, the World Economic Forum uh, put together their, and it's really, they're, they're the ones who've led the charge on ESG, uh, a metrics, a metrics for environmental governance and social indicators. And so, you know, as your company goes through these metrics, and they are literally metrics that are laid out, you do an internal audit regarding your environmental footprint, your measure against sustainable development practices, against deep ecology, against the, the Green New Deal, whether it's the American side or the European side or whichever, you know, wherever you're from as a nation, they all have their own versions to some extent. So you measure it against those indicators. 
And if it doesn't quite fit, well, then you've got to make it fit. You have to make it align so that your ESG mark can go up, up, up. And then they do the same thing with your governance model. Do you have uh, the right amount of diversity on your board of directors? Are your board of directors engaged in, in the right governance act actions that model these new principles, these new ideas? Do you have enough uh, uh, gender inclusivity? You know, the list goes on. And then, of course, you have the social side. What are you doing to help further this uh, within the community? Uh, what, what kind of campaigns and, and programs are you engaged in? How are you uh, help, helping, let's say, push for, towards carbon neutrality um, in your field of influence? Uh, and that may even include your, your role in, in working with non-governmental organizations and even providing funds into, the, into other sectors uh, to, to push this narrative. And so all of this is measured. I mean, this is globalization getting to the, you know, to, to the nuts and bolts, which is accounting. <laughs> globalization at this point, Dan, isn't an abstract. We're not theorizing. We're actually, it, it's, it's literally met the level of accounting. It's bean counters. It's bean counters. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, and then if you don't fit, if your, if your company is too low on the ESG scaling, well, then you better up your, up your game. Cause if you don't, maybe the market isn't open to you or maybe your upside uh, says, you know, you know, let's say I'm Coca-Cola Coca, by the way, the CEO of Coca-Cola said this roughly what I'm going to say, uh, um, I think it was in the 2021 uh, World Economic Forum. I monitored the whole thing when it was when it went on uh, on uh, on a, a virtual platform, mm -hmm. and the CEO of, of Coca Cola was talking about how his company was pressuring its downside, its suppliers, to become ESG compliant. Otherwise, those doors be closed to them. They would look for for new suppliers. Well, what do you think that's going to do if you're a small company supplying something into the into the ecosystem of Coca-Cola, which is not just, by the way, just sugar water. There's lots of stuff that goes on. Um, what do you think you're going to do? Well, you're going to sit down with your WEF-approved social, environmental, and governance metrics, and you're going to audit yourself, and, and then you're going to reshuffle and restructure your company to be more in line with the global narrative. Because you're not going to want to lose those contracts. So, well, and um, part of that, Carl, um, is is a deceit as well, because it's perception, and it doesn't really matter what it accomplishes. It just matters that you fit within their parameters. Oh, you're so right, Dan. You're so so right. Who cares if if electric vehicles actually uh, re require scads more uh, resources and energy to develop and then to operate than does you know, a, a less efficient internal in, in combustion engine. It's perception, mm -hmm. totally perception. By the way, uh, you're in Montana, you get cold in Montana. I know I've been in Montana enough times, including in the winter, you guys get cold there. Mm -hmm. uh, I live in Canada. I mean, I'm in the I'm actually north of ECU out in the prairies. Um, we can get wicked cold. Yes, uh, it, it can be, you know, wild. Um, minus 30 is, that's kind of normal. We've gone down to minus, into the minus 40s without a wind chill. Um, I've felt the ambient temperature when it's just starting to get close to that minus 50 range. It really sucks. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, it really, really sucks. Now, now I know that that batteries and and electric vehicles. There's lots of new things that are coming online. Lots of of, of efficiencies that are built in place. But I still have to rely on those batteries to keep my my engine or, or not. Pardon me, not my engine, but my cab warm. Keep me warm when it's minus thirty. And so the efficiency of my electric vehicles just goes in my cold climate. But, you know, it might have some value doing short runs. But if I've got to drive all the way across the prairies, Canadian prairies, you know, from here to Calgary, which is like 13, 14 hour drive, and it's minus 30 most of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck. I might as well just put my thumb out and hope that some trucker in a diesel picks me up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but the, per- but the, per- but the perception, the perception. Mm-hmm. And and not to mention, I'm glad you brought up electric vehicles. We've got uh, a, a, a very very dear subject to me is electric vehicles because you're right. Uh, the amount of resources required to put together an electric vehicle is much more damaging to the planet at the current technology than our internal combustion engines. But let's let's uh, let's take that example that you had. When you live in a place like uh, Canada or uh, you know Montana, where you get two feet of snow, and a lot of people have to drive pickups because they carry hay or some materials in the back that are part of their rural culture. Guess what? That uh, that two hundred and fifty mile range that uh, they idealize becomes more like 50 miles Hmm. because you're not in their ideal platform on a flat ground. You're actually living in hilly country with deep snow and all the rest. And they're they're totally impractical, uh, totally impractical for certain lifestyles. Well, guess what? That's the point. When they get everybody driving these things, they can get everybody on the planet out of rural communities and and having their own property and and farming and ranching and doing the things that they want to do and force them to live in a stack and pack mega city on public transportation because they know that these electric vehicles are totally impractical and it's only one more step into a system where you either walk, ride a bicycle, or you are on public transportation and you're forced to live in a a mega city, not in single family residences, but in stack and pack housing. I mean, it's, it's it's all very, very evolutionary into totalitarianism. It, it is, and I don't know if you've ever taken the time to unpack and go through the uh, the documents from the United Nations World Urban Forums, um, because that's kind of like the, the the modeling for where cities and smart cities and how cities will work with the SDGs, uh, where all that kind of comes into play in a significant way. I, I've only attended one. I attended the one in Vancouver back in. 2006. Uh, that at that point, that was the third uh, uh, world. Uh, pardon me, world urban forum, and, and the and they definitely idealize 
the idea that the city is is where the world has to come together. This is where we converge. And and I get it. The city is historically the place where politics lives itself out. Is is cities are the place where your where where your economics is 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 um um condensed it becomes kind of the focal point it's the focal point of of where your your hubs of trade and all the rest of that go it's it's where your education and your, your arts and and all of that comes out of a out of a, a of an urban environment <coughs> pardon me but at the same time it is absolutely 100 dependent on what happens outside of the of the parameters of that city mm-hmm. where does it where does the power for that city come from where does this food for that city come from mm-hmm. When you are in a city and you flush a toilet, where do you think your crap goes? Where does yeah, your water come true. from? You know, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, when I was at the 2006 forum, uh, I, I made a point of asking the question to various delegates. So how are you guys taking into consideration rural realities? That was one of the reasons I went. Um, I want to know what your thought pattern was. I want to know what, what your what your how you're how you're processing this and over and over again dan i was told that what are you talking about the rule doesn't matter we're we're it's about urbanization becoming global cities and i remember the first time i had this a, a talk with with somebody about this it was right before lunch and i said to the person i said you know we're going to be walking in to the dining hall we're gonna have lunch where do you think that food came from where do you think the steel and the plastic comes from that we're going to be sitting on called chairs? Where do you think that came from? We're going to be turning the light switch on. Somebody has to do it when they walk into that room. Where was that power generated from? And what were the resources used to power that or to create that, that energy, natural gas or coal or even hydroelectricity? Where did that come from? When you drink water, where did that water originate from? Where was it sourced from? Again, when you go to the bathroom, where are you dumping your stuff? And then that, that, Dan, that's literally how I laid it out. Almost like that, you know, identical to how I just laid it out to you. And the person just went silent. And, and, and I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl, but to the effect of, of you just all of a sudden it was like, oh, you know, you're right. You're right. I hadn't thought of that. Other conversations I had during that, the course of that week were, it didn't matter. Even if I spread all that out, it didn't matter. It was just like, no, no, this is, this is where the world is going. We have to make the world a better place, and this is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, now, of course, we have you know, 15-minute cities. Uh, and of course, smart cities, which all fits hand in glove with this 15-minute city idea. Yeah, well, good luck with that. I, I don't know where exactly, Dan, where you live. I know roughly where you live because uh, I've passed through your part of Montana oodles of times, and the next time I do that, I will be stopping. Love visiting. Mm-hmm. I would love that. Um, but I do know that here, if I travel 15 minutes, I see a field. I travel another 15 minutes, I see another field. And that's all I see for a long, long time. Uh, it doesn't work in your in your rural area. So maybe what we need to do is strip the rural of all of us little peons, make sure that all we have left are Massive corporate farms owned by shareholders out of Europe or out of Asia, um, and they will have their their upstreams and downstreams that they'll be working with, and uh, and and you and I have to go and and just get stacked up in a cube somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's what they plan. And, you know, what, what you described earlier is uh, the Hunger Games. That's their vision. If one, someone wants to kind of understand uh, just where this is all heading. Now, I know there's going to be variations, but the Hunger Games really are a pretty good template of where this could very well end if they are allowed to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. What, what, one, one hope I do have in all this, and I actually have a lot of things that I'm hopeful for. Uh, first of all, as, as the individual said, even before your show began, because I was listening to some of that earlier, some of the, a little bit of the early conversation there, um, we know the end. <laughs> we do know the end. Not only do we know the end, we also know the history, the history behind the move towards this and how historically even those grand ideas of men as they attempt to do the, to do this over and over and over again, because this isn't just new. What we're talking about isn't new. It's just nothing more than the continuation of a very old idea that historically we can look at how this has been played out and the models that have been used and see it fail over and over and over and over again. And I'm thankful for its failings. I'm extremely disheartened though, by the catastrophe that it creates as it does fail. Mm-hmm. I'm mean, even more disheartened by the catastrophe it causes while it is attempting to succeed. Um, Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward is a grand, you know, a grand mm-hmm. uh, example of that. So it falls apart. It doesn't work. But what we unleash as we attempt to make it uh, happen, that that is where things get really, really disturbing. For us as, as Christians, our hope obviously isn't in this world. It sure isn't in that system, because what we're really talking about is a system of, system of, of, of Babylon. That's really what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that the system of Babylon is defeated. It comes to an end. In fact, it comes to a grinding end. And, and so I, my hope is not in what man will do. My hope sure isn't in the World Economic Forum. It sure isn't in the United Nations. My goodness, my hope isn't even in my local council level at the municipal level. I know the guys there. Some great people. Um, but at the same time, I know that the whole system itself is fallible, and I have to be responsible for myself and my family. And then I have to be responsible as I am interacting with the community around me. No question, this idea of stewardship, going back to our initial part of our conversation, all this comes into play. But when we, when we look at globalization, yeah, I have, I have the assurance that I know that in the end, uh, God will not be mocked. And the other thing that, that kind of comes to fruition with all this, Dan, and we saw this with COVID, and I, I see this as if there's a blessing to COVID, and there's a few blessings that have come about, is it has helped me now to know who I can trust mm-hmm. and who I can't. It has helped me now to understand the importance of having networks of trust mm-hmm. and then making that happen. And then having conversations, and I've had some good conversations. In fact, just a few weeks back, I had a great conversation with a couple of, of, of pastors in a church in southern Ontario. They flew me in to, have, uh, to be a part of their, of their church and do some conference talks. And then uh, when it was all said and done, the event was over. Uh, we met in one of their homes, and, and I think there was like five of us all together, just wrestling through them as pastors. What happens when we have the next set of lockdowns? What happens when we have the next government mandates that step over the bounds? How then should we respond? Not react, because we just reacted. That's all we did. We didn't respond. We didn't have forethought to it. 
So now that we know that this stuff happens, let's have some forethought. Let's think through what a proper response should be. And that included even to the point where they were discussing, and some of the, the conversation was our membership list. Maybe uh, it's time that we, uh, that, we stream, yeah, that we put our membership list uh, in a notebook on paper uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, we, we, and that we can dispose of that if we have to. Because if you take a look historically, and I'm thinking specifically on what happened during the Holocaust, how did the Germans know who the Jews were? If you, if you weren't going to, uh, you know, if, we, if you weren't going to wear the star on your arm, how do they know who you were? Well, one of one of the ways they learned who you were is they went to the synagogue and they obtained membership lists. Mm -hmm. That's and exactly the, right. And the rabbis turned them in, and which is why when you had the 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 the, the ghetto uprising in Poland or in, in in Warsaw, the uprisings there when the Jews fought back after being placed in their concentration ghettos, the very first people that they offed were not Germans. They went and offed their own people who had sold them out and, and who the Germans had put in charge of overseeing them. See, this is, this is an interesting, this is an interesting um, technique or a, a model that comes through. Uh, the overlords, so to speak, let's just call them the globalists, they don't need uh, to... to to wear a gun, you know, to, to hold a gun and to wear a badge and to walk into your place of residency or into your business. Uh, they've delegated those powers and they've delegated those, those authorities, which they truly actually don't even have. They've delegated all that down the line. And so it's your, your neighbors who do it. Uh, or, or it's your minister who does it. And so, again, the hope I see in some of this is one of the things is the importance of knowing who you can trust. And there's hope in that. There's actually, it's actually a good thing. Uh, it forces you to go, you know, I've, I've, I'm comfortable with this person or this group of people. And I know who I'm not going to be inviting into my home because I already know what happened over COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. This is a good model. It was a, te a good test bed. And you said something that is so important, and that is, that the people who are really behind this stuff seldom expose themselves, but they understand human nature and they transfer authority to the weak who they know they can intimidate into being the ones that uh, turn everybody else in, that be the ones that will control everybody else. And all they're doing is they're transferring the risk of being caught to someone else. And people need to realize this. When you play footsie with the devil, you're going to be the one that pays, not the devil. That's exactly right, Dan. That's exactly right. So in this situation, and COVID was such a good example of that, um, who's held accountable? Mm -hmm. Is Fauci accountable? No, nope, it's uh, the doctors. It, it's the, yep. the doctors and all the people who went along with this stuff. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. I know. So the same modeling applies, whether it's land policy and land enforcement that happens. And, and of course, uh, you're in the U.S. West. You know the range wars, what, how that's all shaped out. Um, you know, it's the the... the 
BLM agents who for probably for the most part are just regular folks who are doing a job and want to do a good job of it and actually have good principles. All of a sudden, some of those guys find themselves doing things that they probably know intuitively already is against what is honest and what is what is true mm-hmm. as they and have to enforce land-based policies that have come down from the top out of Washington, D.C. that aren't structured in reality, but structured in some academic who was able to give a good speech at the United Nations, who then the United Nations then turns around over the course of, of time and develops a, a conference around environmental issues. And then we have our heads of state rushing off to those same conferences going, uh, yeah, we have to save the world. Then we come back to to Washington, D.C. or Ottawa or Brussels and then institute national policies and then state policies and local policies and somewhere somebody has to enforce those policies. Mm-hmm. But it didn't yeah. arise. It didn't arise out of out of the common sense of people who are actually involved in living on the land. Um, you know, we, we tend to forget that the most destructive force in human nature probably the most destructive force uh, in humanity, uh, and this is part of our human nature, is government. Mm-hmm. That's the big lesson mm-hmm. of the last century. The most destructive force in humanity is government. Uh, government, if it's placed within its boundaries and operates in its God-given boundaries, is it's very limited in what it can do, but it does some very important things. But it has overstepped its boundaries a long time ago. And so what happened during the last century? We had the most bloodshed in all of human history. Um, We had the the worst wars in human history. Who caused those wars? Well, they weren't farmers sitting around the coffee shop deciding to invade the neighbor, was it? That's right. It wasn't a janitor and a group of janitors getting together. No, no, this is always government. When it, came, when it came to slaughtering the masses in, in, in genocides, whether it was Pol Pot doing that to his own people uh, or, or Hitler going into, in, into Poland or um, Stalin with, his, with, you know, with the Ukrainians, who did it? Who started it? Again, it wasn't farmers sitting around the table going, hey, let's, you know, let's annihilate an entire people group. No, it, it, it comes from government and, and the authority to do so emanates from government. So we need to recognize that the most destructive force that humanity can unleash is ultimately found at the seat of government. And then if we look at it from that Christian perspective, it goes even one step deeper into the problem of the human heart being sinful, saying we can be as God. And, and Carl, um, Government, that's a wonderful statement you made, but government, the more concentrated and uh, the less uh, uh, individual uh, involvement by people, government spread out. Now, um, America under the original constitution was government that all emanated from the individual to local groups, to councils, to commissions, uh, to state government, and the federal government. By the time it got to the federal government, it was incredibly diffuse. What they have done is turn that concept 
on its head under globalism. And the more in uh, the more um, concentrated the seats of power are, the more likely you're going to have mass genocide. That's just a simple fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the more that that governments align themselves with the global narrative, the more they justify their overstep, because now they're doing it for a greater good. Now they're doing it for a larger purpose. That's, you know, again, the going back to the mindset. And, and now it's even that much more difficult to try to bring reason into play. It's almost like, I hate to say this in a way, it's almost like you have to allow it to play itself out. And it always plays itself out in a dramatic and really sad and tragic way. Yeah. Right. Bloody, rarely, rarely does it rain itself in. Uh, it only does so uh, when all of a sudden it realizes that the people themselves are tired of this. And, and sometimes it does happen. Um, I, I think of, of, of how Romania, when it finally fell with Ceausescu, and, and you know, uh, how did that end? It, it's, it's, well, it ended with Ceausescu and his wife being taken behind what their palace house and their own police officers putting a bullet to them. Because it was it was done. We're we're finished. We're finished with the lunacy, this bloody utopian lunacy that you've unleashed. Um, we're finished. Mm-hmm. And, and and I and I hope it never comes to that in, in 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 your country or in my country. I hope it never comes to that. But boy, we are riding the edges of that, aren't we? Where it's like, golly, um, where are you taking us? Where are you forcing us? Where are you, you know, you're pushing us into a, against a wall and either you will beat us to submission or, or something's going to, something's going to happen. And I hate to think along those lines, but I do know that those are some of the conversations not conversations in a specific way, but in a general way, are we all of a sudden at this point of, of, you know, I've heard the conversation now in, in your country, this idea of the, the national divorce, um, which I don't think could actually technically even happen. It would be, it would be a, it would be a civil war. Mm-hmm. Yuck. We don't want to go down those roads. So what we want to see is, and I pray this, we have godly wisdom that comes to the foreground that comes through the ranks uh, and displaces the foolishness that we have presently in positions of power. And that that godly wisdom comes into play before those in power Um just utterly destroy what we do have that is good mm-hmm. and on occasion that happens sometimes that does happen um but unfortunately that does require a people group a citizenry to be educated <laughs> and not educated in global you know not educated in in the the narrative of globalism in, in the sense that they're woke they need to be educated in in what is true and what is solid and foundational they need to be educated in in what is noble well, that's why we do these podcasts, uh, Carl, and that's why we have wonderful guests on our podcast like yourself, because it is a matter of education. Our ignorance is how they've managed to get us as far down the road as they have. And uh, frankly, the, the more that we uh, look at this stuff and understand it, the more we realize how far off the rails they are. And it's happened 
because so many people, it's a, it's a natural tendency of civilized people to want to believe the best and not anticipate the worst. They want to believe that our leaders couldn't possibly do these sorts of things. And in the end, that's how they get away with as much as they do and push it as far as they do. And uh, you, you brought up BLM. I'm going to, I, I want to go there a little bit because uh, the 30 by 30 initiative that uh, Biden uh, passed by executive order that says by the year 3030, 30% 30 of the United States will be under a common trust, will be owned by the, the political entity and not by the people, okay? Now, BLM has got a, a big role in that because a lot of these lands that they're talking about taking out of uh, private ownership are right next to public lands. That's the target they always pick first is the land that's next to a public land. And so BLM and the Forest Service and different federal agencies are part of this. And uh, in fact, we need a resurgence of people who understand their purpose as a government agent isn't to, to take away all of our rights. Their purpose as a government agent is to protect our rights. And they've gotten so far away from that. A lot of them, I, I hear the comment, well, I'm just going to uh, bide my time and I'll be retired in five years or eight years or whatever, and then I won't worry about it. That is not the way people need to think, is it? No, no, it's not. You, you are to be responsible. Uh, but I do understand how groupthink works. And, and there's this tendency to just keep your head low. You don't want to all of a sudden, you know, stick up above the crowd. Sure, don't want to all of a sudden be, you know, the targeted, the the, the target of of your of your management's wrath. Uh, you know, the, those who are uh, above you. All of a sudden, you're going to find yourself, you know, maybe working a BLM um, job somewhere in uh, maybe your part of Montana where it gets too cold. You'd rather maybe work in a nice cushy place. Uh, who knows? Who knows? But, you know, all of a sudden incentive is gone or, or incentive is taken away or now there's a, a negative incentive to follow the, the line. Uh, but you're right. You're supposed to be the one upholding uh, peace and order and, and to be responsible to the fact that you are serving the citizens. But the entire governmental apparatus in the Western world is supposed to be about upholding and serving its citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, that has switched. Now we are upholding narratives and we are safeguarding ideologies. That's what we do. We, are, we have long gone away from, from actual governance. We, we, have, we have now entered the realm of ideological management. And that's, uh, that, that is a scary place. That, that's, that's a road we don't want to keep going on. Um, and, and my country is no different than your country that way. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in some respects, uh, while Canada is more vocal in its wokeness and its, its pushing of ideological narratives, um, ironically, we have less enforcement of that in some respects. Uh, I lived for a short time. I lived for four years in Indianapolis. Um, I really liked Indiana. I love, I love Indiana. I've got good friends. I have lifelong friends now from Indiana. 
The thing that struck me, Dan, was how many layers and levels of authority that existed. Uh, I, I, right from, uh, you know, in terms of policing, every, every office, governmental office seemed to have some guy with a badge and a gun. I, I was I was blown away by that. Uh, okay, so you had your, I understand the county sheriff. I understand all that, and then but then you had your town police, and then you had other levels of police, and then you had your state police, and then you know the post office had their own their own intelligence and police force, and I mean everybody, every government office seems to have its own enforcement arm, and so I would drive around and I'm like. I would see cars with markings and obvious that they're police vehicles or that they're a part of some enforcement mechanism. And I'm going, well, who are you? Which, which agency are you? Um, you're a country where your constitution and how it is framed and how your country is set up says the individual looks to determine responsibly his own course and that freedom and liberty and liberty is the upper opportunities that come when you are free from coercion. And that's the whole idea of freedom, to be free from or no longer being constrained by undue coercion. Your country is established like that. And then at the same time, and this is what struck me as this great irony, uh, seeing just <laughs> the U.S. Federal Register with <laughs> tens of thousands of new laws and, and changed regulation coming out per year. Mm -hmm. And this incredible machinery of, of compliance and, and authority and policing. And I'm like, somehow, and I get, I get some of it, but at the same time, I was, I'm still wrestling with somehow, how does this fit together without creating lots of tension points? And I think they're doing that. I, um, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the post office, we used to do, as a contractor, I used to do a lot of uh, projects for the post office. And one of their main facilities in the Western United States was in uh, the Denver area. And it was a huge complex. It's a, a distribution center and a, you know a major complex. But uh, one of the projects we did there was to build an armory for the post office. And it was a big room, fully armored, and it was set up uh, to be able to put all this weaponry in there. Literally, uh, stacks and stacks of weapons were, uh, were designed into you know, the whole project. Now, why in the world would the post office have that kind of firepower? It made no sense to me, but it was part of the part of their plan, part of the program. Now, uh, how many small agencies have that kind of weaponry? We saw that. I saw that when uh, I was a county commissioner in Southwest Montana, and we had a, a fire, a forest fire, um, in in the area, and the uh, Forest Service guys and the BLM showed up, and they have their own cops heavily armed guys and they actually threatened some of the citizens who were trying to help put out the fires they told them you leave or we're going to take care of business 
And uh, how in the world is that part of our original mindset of a people, of a government of by and for the people? And then I have to think about your sheriffs. What kind of a bind that right. you know that puts them into? Because for the most part, I think the sheriffs understand that their role is to serve and protect their local population, those who put them in position. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know that, that that's got to be like that's got to be conflicting, seriously conflicting. Well, you probably know whose side I was on in that battle, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> it it was frustrating because uh, there there were a group of ranchers that uh, got on their four wheelers with their weed sprayers in the back full of water and went out ahead of this fire and they literally stopped it from uh, going and traveling far enough to burn the the next town over. If they hadn't been there, it would have burned the town down and. Uh, <laughs> and and they chastise those people for using their own initiative to uh, fire uh, stop a fire on their own land. <laughs> and of course, this is right about the same time that Malheur and the the, the stuff was going on uh, in Oregon, uh, where you know the the uh, trying to think of the name of the family there uh, were. Uh, put in prison for stopping a fire from uh, progressing onto their land off of public land. Wow. Wow. That's wild, Dan. That is crazy. Um, And I know these kinds of stories play out over and over and over again. Um, My neck of the woods. Okay. My my nearest RCMP detachment. And I I have, I've got some, people who I know in the RCMP who are good, good folks, good folks. But our local RCMP detachment up until a couple of years ago was just simply, well, up until last year, their, their building was, it wasn't imposing. It was just, here's a building, you know, here's the front. It wasn't huge. It wasn't crazy. It, it fit within the community. Mm-hmm. You know, that's being the point. In fact, the, our closest detachment is about 45 miles away in a community of about 5,000 people. And that was, that's my closest you know, real town, so to speak. Um, I guess everything else would be called villages or hamlets. But, okay, so you have this detachment. Now, over the last two years or so, and I know it was finally done this fall, they had their brand new building built for them and and they do need, did need a new building but they built and it wasn't i don't think it was the rcmp i know it wasn't the local rcmp who determined what they needed to have for a building i'm sure it came down from ottawa with um somebody who's got crazy ideas in their head but all of a sudden here we have this building in 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 our community and it is a superstructure it's like this imposing mm-hmm. bunker system and it's 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 big and it just screams we're at war with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what in the world? Like just the, the imagery that's portrayed says a lot. I used to have the same experience traveling back and forth from the U S to Canada or Canada, to the U S uh, if there's one border in particular that we would travel through quite frequently as we came to the United States before nine 11, the building would be manned by usually just one guy. I got to know him a little bit. Um, 
small little a small little building nothing extravagant nothing crazy of course he's got his computer the whole bit and they've got their you know the arms that come down that that kind of stuff after 9-11 the money that flowed in to the border was unbelievable just unbelievable dan and now if i go through that same crossing in fact, the first time I went through that crossing, it was the same guy there. I'm not going to say his name. He was a great, he's a good guy, really good guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking around. I have to drive through these huge gates. Doors are coming down. I'm like, this is Checkpoint Charlie out of mm-hmm. East Germany. Like, like not just barbed wire, it's just everything is fenced. It's, it's crazy compared to what it was mm-hmm. where, where, trucks would go through with hay and wouldn't wouldn't have issues now it's like how am i going to fit my rig through all of your pylons and all of your you know your metal bars and your cement pillars how am i going to fit everything through all this and i'm like what happened and he actually looked embarrassed and he's like well the money flowed out of washington and all of our little crossings now look like this except the ones in mexico Um, (laughs) To your point, yes, to your point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it makes no sense, and that's kind of the whole point of our entire discussion, is that if rational thinking and intelligent people would just sit down and look at what's happened to the whole process, they would say, this is insanity. What are we doing? This makes absolutely no sense. And yet here we are because we've got these uh, these megalomaniacs who uh, happen to have their hand on the public budget, and they're putting whatever they want into this. And you, you said something really important with the with the budgeting thing. We are funding our own demise. Okay, we are paying for the rope that they're hanging us with through our taxes through our acquiescence to the system. I want you because we're we're gonna run out we could talk oh. for we could talk for days, but uh, I I want to talk about the CBDCs and the mm. cashless society and social credits. I want to have enough time to get into that. But what they are doing now is trying to create a system that we cannot circumvent because we will no longer have cash or anyone any way to pay for anything that they don't totally control. So Absolutely. take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something, Dan? Uh, okay, we were thinking alike because I was like in my mind going, well, we, we now can see a, a, a move, a, a, a shift where it used to be this idea, and we still have this, obviously, we've just discussed this, hard compliance, hard compliance, uh, where we have authority places or authority structures in place, policing in place, all these, the, 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 the hard enforcement, to the point where we are, as a civilization, moving to um, digital enforcement. Mm-hmm. And we see that on social media, where all of a sudden you're censored because you don't fit the the narrative, uh, that is a form of enforcement. That is a form of digital enforcement. We are going to enforce a narrative. And if you're not complying, you don't fit. You you can't operate on those platforms. And boy, we've seen a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to, to artificial intelligence, how now will we monitor enforcement? 
How are we going to monitor, pardon me, more importantly, compliance? How are we going to monitor that? Well, we're going to monitor that through your purchasing power using AI. Because now, if everything is going digital, we have the ability to allow algorithms to monitor and then safeguard against non-compliance. And central bank digital currencies fit right into this because now you have a mechanism, an economic tool, um, pardon me, a monetary tool, because there's a difference, a monetary tool that can be used to give you a, a score. Or you don't even need a score. Maybe you can just already at this point allow the ne this next generation of AI to scan purchasing behaviors and to, to scan compliance requirements to see do you align or not? Oh, you you don't align. Well, maybe your 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 trade ticket has been canceled, or maybe your vehicle insurance has been canceled. That happened with the truckers, by the way, mm -hmm. in Canada in Canada here a little over a year ago. All of yep. a sudden, uh, you're not in compliance. They canceled your bank accounts, and then they canceled for some people their insurance, uh, their corporate business side of it all. They they all of a sudden wreaked havoc digitally against you they didn't have to have i mean yes they had police enforcement in the streets of ottawa and then after that the enforcement continued the compliance enforcement continued the the vendetta against you now continued because that's what it was it was vindictive politics politics that's really what it was um and so i i look at what happened here in the last last year in my country and there is an incredible argument to be made against digital collectivization, digital, um, uh, having, having everything held in, in the commons in a digital way. Uh, no, thank you. Besides all the other problems that AI potentially you know, can arise because of it, uh, the issue of control, monitoring, compliance, uh, making sure that you fit in now with a, <laughs> a digitally monitored ESG standard for all of you, not just as a company, but as individuals. And that can all be done through what you buy and what you sell, what you mm -hmm. register, what you have to register, which is why registration sometimes, I'm thinking in my own country, Canada, why gun registration, uh, all of a sudden you're like, hold on. Like, I, I, I hear your arguments for why you're wanting to do this, which are arguments without arguments, by the way. Uh, they're social arguments. They're not arguments based in reality. They're ideological arguments. But for those who do comply, I know people who have, and I know people who haven't. All of a sudden, the question comes up, if, you, you know, if you've complied, now what does this mean when all of a sudden my government says no, to certain uh, behaviors and you find yourself on the wrong side of, of what they're saying no to. Well, all of a sudden you see police officers knocking on the door saying, hand over your guns because we know you have them. Well, actually that does happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. And uh, uh, what you're talking about, you mentioned uh, how the, uh, the Jews in Nazi Germany, how they knew where they were. And, and you're right there. Anytime there's a registration, uh, there's going to be a way that uh, they can get names and identify certain groups of people. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're, we're notoriously 
lacks as a, as a people in North America. I think it's the same in Canada, but it's really bad in the United <laughs> States. We're extremely lax in understanding how these tools can be used against us and just not, not doing it, not complying. Um, I recently got a, a, uh, 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 well, it was a, a, a thing from uh, the Census Bureau uh, asking me, uh, it was an uh, agricultural census for my place, for my ranch, and uh, to fill out all this information. Well, I, you know, 20 years ago, I would have probably at least done part of it. But I have no interest, and in they threaten you with fines and all this stuff. I'd rather pay the fine, frankly, than have them get that uh, that much information. I mean, they ask you when you go to work, how you travel, what you use, uh, how many miles you travel a day, how long you're gone from your from your home, uh, things like that that could be used in so many diabolical ways if they went into the wrong hands. And I think uh, we are at a point now in this this country, and probably well past that in your country, where, you know, we just need to say, no, we're not going to conform. If uh, we have to pay a small fine for not conforming, so be it. We'll do it. Yep. Uh, you're right, Dan. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and we have to start making those, you know, thinking about what those trade-offs look like. Because we we will make we will be making trade offs. There's no question about that. We already are, uh, you know. And COVID was a good example of where we start to think through. Okay, what's the trade off between one action versus another? You know, my government is saying versus what the reality on the ground is saying. What is it? And so, you know, that's those are important things to, to that we have to start wrestling through. Um, You'd made a point earlier about how we as a as generation, we have we, we want to see the best and we want to have, you know, see the best in 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 government and in law enforcement and all that goes into it. Um part of that comes from the fact that we still have one foot, generationally speaking, in a time period where government was far less invasive, mm -hmm. where we had a common cultural understanding. There was a common ethos uh, in, in, in our nations. And, and so now we have entered an age when all of that is being ripped away. All of that is in flux. But we still have a, a somewhat of a mindset that, that still takes us back into that earlier time, that earlier time period. So we're in a transition phase. And if you take a look at any transition phase, when there's a massive revolution, whether it's the, 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 the Soviet revolution that happened around World War I uh, or other revolutions, there's always this sense of, well, it can't be that bad. Seeing, seeing the writing on the wall, it can't be that bad. Because you've already had, historically, your foot back in that, you know, that earlier ethic where it wasn't that bad. It actually worked out pretty darn good. But then as the decades unfold and as time unfolds, that generation now is, is, is completely disillusioned or, they're, or they've died off. And you have a, an entirely new generation that's lived in this. And eventually that generation, uh, you know, they try to operate within the system. They don't necessarily know any better, but there's a sense of, as that generation moves along, a sense of disgruntlement 
disillusionment, depression that comes into it. And do you see that? If you want to study the social history of collectivist states, that is what you see, uh, where, where your individuality has been beaten down and you don't really have a lot of purpose unless you align with the greater purpose. Then all of a sudden, now you have a sense of purpose. You have a sense of belonging. Uh, and, and you're going to be you're going to be the tyrant. You're going to be the tyrant on the on, on, you know, in your neighborhood on the block, uh, because that gives you a, a reference point that gives you something to to be alive for. But the rest of the civilization is just, you know, heads down, keep your heads down, keep your heads down. I just go to work. I just go to work. I just go home. I just go to work. Keep your head down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. until it runs its course and starts well, to fall. And, and, you and you're right in using uh, the, the former Soviet Union, the Bolshevik Revolution, as a perfect example where um, people didn't think it could be that bad. And in fact, they thought it might be really, really good yep. because all they ever heard was the idealized versions, the utopian versions of what was going to happen if they just allowed all this other stuff to happen. Well, guess what? Their utopian visions are absolutely dead wrong. They've been proven to be bad ideas multiple, multiple times. And we as a society have to recognize that and not have our heads down uh, because putting your head down basically it takes away your ability to see what's coming and to see what's going to whack you right in the face uh, Mm -hmm. as you're traveling your path. Yep. And you have then just given over your sovereign independence created in God's image into a system that says we will remake it into our own image. Uh, and, and this is why shows like this, Dan, are important because I think part of part of why we do what we're what we're doing here is to help all of us, including myself, wrestle through this. So then, what should my response be? How do I position myself? What do I stand on? And not just simply in the negative. What am I against? But what am I for? Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So often that gets lost in the conversations. What am I for? And then to work through, all right, am I willing to count costs? Am I willing to do a valuation and, and, and work through what that looks like? Because it's going to cost me something. If I'm going to be a steward and I'm going to be responsible, that's going to cost me something. It always does. That's why we would rather have somebody else pick up the tab, you know, whether it's government or, or some corporation or somebody else. And then just to, to, to work through, okay, what we see the train coming, if I can get off the track a little bit even, maybe I can safeguard my family, myself, my business. I got to start thinking it through though. And of course, everybody will want a one size fits all solution. Just tell me what to do. No, you figure out what you have to do and do it within the reason and, and, and the moral structure that God is, has laid out for us as Christians. Yeah, but don't, but you know, that's so important, but you know, mm-hmm. and that's where the rubber hits the road. Everybody wants to go, okay, well, let's go beyond the theoretical and go to the practical. That's practical. It just takes some work on your part. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you said something earlier that was really important. We need to quit reacting and start responding. 
what they've done is they've created these scenarios and they expect people to react. And usually when you react, you don't make as wise decisions as you will if you plan ahead and uh, come back with a response that makes the most sense for you and your family. And that's where we need to be. Right. Absolutely correct, Dan. Um, very, very important. And that's that's in this day and age of social media where we have been almost trained, triggered to react, uh, it becomes increasingly more difficult to, to, to sit down and formulate a response. Well, you've made a good point, and that is we need to we need to think about this. People need to think about who their friends are and who they can trust. And, and then, honestly, if enough of us stood up, it wouldn't be a problem. Right. I mean, if 20% of the people in the world said, we're not going to put up with this nonsense anymore, we're standing up, for the most part, the people that do these programs are cowards. And they do them, they're naturally born as bullies. They, they do them because they t- constantly test the ground to see what they can get away with. And the more we allow them to get away with, the more their egos take over and they think, hey, we're so cool, we're so powerful, we can do anything we want. And that's where the bully mentality comes in. We need to get to the point where we realize if you let a bully go, they're gonna be a much worse problem than if you stop that bully and say, no more, we're not gonna put up with this crap. Right, and and to that point, then it's also important for us as citizens to support those who are in government, support police officers, sheriffs, Mm -hmm. counselors, committee members who are there upholding and working their hardest to do it properly, to do it right, and uphold and support them because they're really the first line of defense against those bullies, and they have to operate now in opposition to them. Uh, So there's an important side to this that sometimes is, again, overlooked. We need to support those who are doing their duty and doing their duty responsibly and honorably because they also have to be, you know, uh, they are the frontline workers, so to speak, against that tyranny. And uh, it's important for us then to support them in that capacity. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of really important ones. Uh, The local sheriff, obviously. And if he isn't a constitutional sheriff, if he is allowing uh, these things to go on in his county that are not for the uh, benefit of the people, you need to either replace him through the vote or you need to make him aware of his responsibility and hold him accountable. Accountability is a big deal. And what you're talking about, we've got some wonderful legislators in the state of Montana. We have, I'm sure you do in in your province, uh, there are some really good people there. We don't do enough to support the ones that are trying to do the right thing. Right, right. So what we have now, going full circle of this whole conversation, the influence of the global coming right down to the local. But it's at the local where you can make a difference and push back against that global. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Well, um, your book, Game of Gods, I want to give you a chance to plug a little of the work that you're doing, but you've, you've written a couple of other shorter uh, 
things as well. And you're constantly writing. I know that. What What are your next uh, projects and <laughs> what are you working on now? Good question. Uh, Game of Gods is kind of like the, uh, I, it's, it's, it's the foundation. Uh, and, and from Game of Gods, I can actually branch out and I can take every chapter, pretty much every chapter, and make it into uh, a book on its own. I have been approached by a, a publishing company to write a basically like a condensed version without all the footnotes and maybe bring it up to speed and maybe keep it within 200 pages. So I'm working a little bit on, on what that entails. I'm also uh, at this point wrestling through uh, writing a manuscript on interfaithism and how interfaithism is that religious arm of political globalization. And so I would covet your prayers and your support as I am working on both these projects at the same time and trying to uh, really trying to make that kind of, you know, to make it happen. Uh, and in both cases, it's using Game of Gods as that reference point to build from. Uh, if, if people are interested in Game of Gods, it, it's a great big book. It's a huge book, as you already alluded to in the beginning of your of your program. I think with the, with the uh, index is 570 pages or so in length, but it really is a compendium, uh, a survey work that's a compendium of how, on one side, culture and then politics and then religion all converge at this crossroad, and and what that looks like as we unpack it from its historical and its contemporary um, situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I look at you, <laughs> Carl, as uh, uh, a modern Ayn Rand. Uh, <laughs> I, I see you, I see Game of Gods, and I'm serious when I say this. When I read it, um, it uh, it's like a modern version of Atlas Shrugged. Mm. Um, it really is because it brings into play all the different facets of this global game to take over the world and to provide a one world collectivist system and, and really feudal system. Mm. So, um, I, you know, it, it really is that kind of a read. And I, I think of it in those terms. It's like a contemporary version of Atlas Shrugged. Well, thank you. That's uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it in those terms. That's kind of interesting, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, I should have written a uh, I, should, I should have written a footnote or something that you could put in there. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, Carl, thank you for being our guest. We're out of time, but uh, what a fascinating discussion and. The thing is, we're not going to get anywhere until we start to educate everybody around us. And everybody can be a teacher. You're a perfect example of that. You just need to take the time to do it. And if you don't feel like you can write a book, read a book, because mm -hmm. others have that ability. And don't just read things that you agree with read things that you disagree with. I've learned more from, uh, you know, reading uh, works by Karl Marx and all the rest. I've learned more than I've learned in reading stuff that bolsters the ideas that I have. Mm -hmm. Because there's one thing about it, learning to know your enemy is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So anyway, Carl, thank you so much for being our guest. And it looks like... Uh, Don and Tim and Barb are ready to go with You Don't Say. So at that point, uh, ladies and
Prosper, and please join us again next Sunday for Connecting the Dots and next Tuesday morning again for Connecting the Dots. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea. From Detroit down to Houston, and New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt.